Welcome to the Baru Podcast, a modern lifestyle podcast for dogs and their people. I'm your host, Charlotte Bain, and today I have a very cool guest. His name is Zachary Silver, and he's a PhD candidate in the Developmental Psychology Department at Yale University, where he works in the Canine Cognition Center, studying how dogs view the social world. We chat about his research, the creative ways he conducts his studies, and even a little bit about a sweet, sneaky dog named Winston. So let's just get to the chat. Are you at Yale now? My, my... I'm not on campus, but okay. um, I, I live just like a mile from campus. My, uh, one of my best friend's uh, daughter is at Bulldog Days right now. She's the one oh, who, yeah. Yeah, she's the one who um, took it when she was touring, took a picture of the Canaan Cognition Center and sent it to me um, when she knew I was starting to work on this project. So, yeah, I was actually just helping out with Bulldog Days uh, yesterday um, with the psych department's booth. So, hopefully, recruiting a lot of, uh, of new psychology majors. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, um, thanks for chatting with me. I'm familiar with um, Alexander Horowitz's work at Barnard, I believe, um, yeah. just because of the books that she's written. Um, and uh, do you want to start from the beginning? Yeah. You want to introduce yourself first? Uh, my <laughs> name is Zachary Silver. I'm a PhD candidate in developmental psychology at Yale University, where I work in the Canine Cognition Center, exploring how dogs represent the social world. And what we do in, in our lab is we always start with big picture questions of what makes the human mind unique. And then we seek to explore different areas in which we might see that human uniqueness by exploring cognition in other animals. So my work in particular looks at how domestic dogs represent social situations that we know are very salient to humans. Uh, in particular, I'm most interested right now in how dogs make these social judgments about humans based on observations that they've seen. Fascinating. And so what have you, how do you do that? I mean, do you, through games, through, um, how do you study that, I guess, is my question. Yeah. One of the things I love about psychology and all of its subdisciplines is that you have to be very creative to design experiments that will give you answers to the questions you're looking to answer. Uh, but with when you are in a situation that we are in where you're working with animals, in fact, you have to be even more creative because we can't ask the questions of what do you think about these people or right. tell us about your impressions of the social situation. Instead, we have to find ways that we can present dogs with a scenario in which we expect that some behavior they might produce in response to that scenario can tell us about their preferences. So my experiments typically look something like this, where we show dogs an interaction between two people. Uh, most commonly, this will take the form of one person helping another person okay. or refusing to help that person. So the dogs are getting information about whether or not that person is helpful or not helpful. And then we see if relative to some other person who basically didn't do anything, there's kind of a neutral person that's in the room. Right. Do dogs preferentially approach the person who they saw behaving helpfully? Do they preferentially avoid the person who they saw behaving unhelpfully? Uh, so we take this measure of who dogs want to spend time near over the course of some duration of time after the presentation of the scenario as a cue to whether or not they like that person. So traditionally, we, we'd expect to see dogs spend more time near people that they like. I think that that idea seems pretty well accepted across our field. And what we find is that dogs in many cases actually do seem to judge humans based on their behavior. We call this social evaluation. So the social part being that these are about social interactions, then evaluation being that dogs are able to use the information they've seen in that social interaction to make some type of an inference about how that person might behave in the future. 
And then to use that information to decide well, who would I prefer to interact with? And what we find is that there's, there's actually a lot in which dogs are paying attention to when they see human to human interactions. Interesting. And they're using that information all the time to decide who they should interact with. So our dogs really are judging us. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and in some cases, in ways that are more nuanced than we might expect, uh, in fact, dogs seem to possess a level of nuance for making these judgments about humans that seems almost human-like at times. Humans are able to make these judgments of prosociality, as we call it, so the preference for kind people and the avoidance of unkind people from a really young age. And it seems that under the right circumstances, dogs can do this as well. It's really exciting for us in this idea of understanding what is uniquely human. And we might think that these complex social phenomenon of being able to track who's nice and who's mean based on observed behavior might be something that only humans do. But in fact, we see that here a species that has no genetic similarity to us whatsoever is actually able to do a lot of the same social things that we're able to do. And this brings us to sort of the main approach that we take in the lab, which is that we're interested in studying dogs because of this rich social relationship that dogs have with humans. Right. And there's two very important parts to the social relationship. The first is a historical one, that over the course of 40,000 years, we've been domesticating dogs and shaping them to understand certain things. So in the case of dogs making a social judgment or social evaluations, that may have been something that they've had to do for a very long time. It might've been really important for dogs to be able to seek out who was a helpful person and avoid the people who might not be helpful. That literally may have been the difference between life and death for an animal um, early in their domestication history. Right. So if that is the case, we'd expect that the dogs who were able to do that were the ones that survived. And then generation by generation, we started to have a species of dogs who almost exclusively were able to make these social judgments. That's really interesting for us because that tells us that dogs were developing this trait across their lifespan. Now, that also could be... Um, not the case at all, right? It might have nothing to do with domestication. It might have everything to do with their lives in living alongside humans. So the second piece of our comparative approach is just to study dogs because they live with us and we are a part of their natural social environment. So that makes them almost uniquely suited for this question because there are no species that we know of besides dogs that have this combination of having been with us for as long as they have across their entire domestication history in which we were bred, breeding them for cooperation, but also living with us during their lives and getting more information about our social interactions each time they're, they're observing humans interacting with each other. Right. Is there a greater purpose for this study? I mean, other than... Um... There's a couple applications of this work. Uh, the first one and sort of the one that jumps out to us as psychologists most is that we're learning more about humans by learning more about dogs. We understand what makes us unique and maybe how we're similar to other animals. It also helps us answer this question of the extent to which social environment can be a primary determinant of behavior. So yes. social environment is something that we can really control for dogs. In fact, and we have some studies now in our lab where we're looking to see differences between dogs that have been raised in different environments. So dogs that are exposed to a lot of training versus minimal training, and then it's looking to see whether or not those dogs are better at the cognitive abilities we think dogs should have. And this has a lot of interesting carryovers into the domains of human social learning, of what it takes for humans to develop the social inferences that we have. So our work potentially has some implications for how we think about systems of education and early learning, and that dogs are likely a good model for learning from humans. And the role of social environment can be really manipulated and strategically understood there in a way that we really couldn't ethically do with humans. 
Um, and what's great about dogs is we don't have to actually assign dogs to live in certain situations. There's that right. natural variation that already exists. So we're able to sidestep anything that might be, we wouldn't want to do ethically. We wouldn't want to you know, impose that a dog doesn't get any training, but sometimes dogs don't get any training. Right. And we can just look to see if those dogs are different than dogs that do have lots of training. And now there's an area where we've kind of had this natural variation in a way that we couldn't otherwise collect this data. So I think this work on training in particular is really interesting in terms of its applications to humans. Now we still have a lot to understand uh, about what exactly training is doing to a dog's mind. Mm -hmm. Right now we've, we've stopped short just of knowing that training seems to cause some type of cognitive difference, but we don't know how exactly that works. So we have uh, quite a bit of a road ahead of us to understand that. Um, Aside from, from that understanding humans piece, which I think does represent a lot of what comparative cognition is really all about, there's also some idea that by learning more about dogs, we're able to improve the way in which we interact with them and that right. we coexist with animals. This is true of not just studying dogs, but studying all animals. If you understand the animal better, you can create situations and environments for them in which they are able to express their cognitive abilities um, receive communication from us that's efficient and easy for them to understand. So while our work doesn't relate to training per se, in terms of how you would train a dog, it can help the average person just know how to better interact with their dog, which we think likely will lead to a higher quality of life for the animal and hopefully a stronger relationship between the human and the dog. Absolutely. And that's one of the basics for this podcast is how we can make humans better companions for dogs. And it seems like this can be incredibly helpful. Have you come across Anything that was shocking when you were working with dogs, like anything that was just um, kind of surprised you? So I still sort of live in the state of awe when I see right. dogs exhibiting these, these cognitive abilities that seem to be on par with those of humans, uh, particularly in the domain of understanding our social communication. This is something that is not from my own research, but from uh, an earlier finding in the field. Um, this idea that dogs are able to follow our human pointing gestures. So we will point to a location and dogs are really effective at tracking that pointing and then responding accordingly by going to where we've pointed to. Uh, what's so interesting about this is it was previously thought that only humans did this. In fact, there was work suggesting that our closest genetic relatives, that being chimpanzees, failed to follow these pointing and also the direction of our eye gaze type cues. Right. So these two primary ways in which we communicate with each other through the, where we're looking and what we're pointing to. Uh, it was thought that was something that only we could do and other animals couldn't do this. And then a group of researchers in the late nineties and early two thousands found that in fact, dogs are quite skilled at this more so than really any other animal that's been tested up to this point. Uh, and that, that was really shocking to me to see that dogs are a species that really possesses this intelligence that we've sort of um, anecdotally thought dogs are very highly intelligent, but we're seeing the ways in which they're intelligent. Now. Right. Uh, one of the questions people often ask me, because I'm someone who studies dogs, they say like, well, tell me how smart are dogs? And I actually say that's maybe not the right question to be asking. Instead, the question we should be asking is in what ways are dogs smart or how are dogs smart? not how smart is my dog, right. uh, because it, in reality, <laughs> dogs actually are very smart just in the specific ways in which they have the opportunity to be. And what's interesting there is this tends to be in the social domain, the domain of understanding humans, understanding what we are asking of them, and then responding accordingly. Dogs are really, really good pattern learners. They learn a lot about what we do and what we're trying to communicate to them very quickly. In fact, that's why dogs are able to work with us in all the contexts that they do. Even today, we see this extreme diversity of what dogs are able to do alongside humans, ranging all the way from dogs that work in, in the service sector, working with um, with individuals as seeing eye dogs or as guide dogs, 
We see dogs also being successful in working with law enforcement and scent detection, search and rescue, as well as the more traditional dog roles that sort of date back to their early domestication roots of hunting and herding and working alongside humans that way. So we see all of these things that dogs are able to do, but they really all come back to this idea that dogs can learn from us and learn about us. And thus they're able to coexist with us in a way that is really unique. There's no other uh, human animal relationship that's quite like the human dog bond. And for me, that is kind of the most awe-inspiring thing about dogs' intelligence. Have you noticed a vast difference um, between the individual dogs that you've been working with? I have, actually. And this is one of the things I'm really hoping to explore in uh, future stages of my research. Right now, the work that I'm doing, as well as the work that I would say most uh, of the other individuals studying canine cognition are looking at at this point, is trying to understand dogs broadly and dogs as a species. Uh, But we would hope at some point that we'll be able to get down to this individual differences level where we can start to explore how dogs vary from each other and importantly, predict what um, features of dogs either genetics or environment or age, something of this nature, some demographic information about the dog might be able to predict their cognition. This would be really important for us, both from that perspective of understanding their analogs to human demographic traits, but also in terms of that second piece of knowing how we should interact with those animals. Because if we learn a lot about how dogs that come from a certain background are able to perceive the social world, this can really pay a lot of dividends in how we interact with those animals. Uh, For instance, something we know very little about right now is how dogs that have not had much human interaction at all learn. So we don't really know much about how a dog that maybe was raised in a shelter or um, in many cases was a stray dog. We don't know much about how these dogs learn about from and about humans. And this is something that you know, has a lot of Im- important implications. If we can learn more about how to best interact with these animals, we can potentially give more dogs homes. I think so there's, right. there's a, lot, a lot of value here to be extracted from looking at individual dogs and differences between them. Unfortunately, we just aren't quite at that stage of the research yet where we can start looking at, at differences between dogs. One of the limitations that we have there is we would need to test astronomical amounts of dogs to be able to really get at what these subtle differences between dogs are. But importantly, we'd also have to know everything about these dogs' backgrounds. And I can tell you, you as a dog owner myself, I know nothing about what my dog's life was like before I adopted her. Uh, I I can take some guesses, but without knowing that information concretely, it's very hard for us to draw references about early life experiences in dogs. And because most dogs, we don't know what uh, these early life experiences are, it prevents us from being able to run these these analyses based on social environment that comes before their time actually in the lab with us. Where do you get those volunteers? Where do you get the volunteers for your program? Just so I would assume individual dog owners just bring them in or, and then are the, are the dog owners with the dogs during the activities? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have individuals in our community and we have really a wide reach. Uh, we started off just with some local owners in the New Haven area, but we actually have Uh, folks coming from all over Connecticut, as well as some of our surrounding states, Uh, New York, we see people coming all the way from like Northern New England up in Vermont coming down. Um, (laughs) What about Los Angeles? If we threw, flew a dog out there, we could partake in the study. (laughs) We are, we are always open for our long distance traveler dogs to come visit us. But uh, what I love about this model is we get people that are really enthusiastic about learning more about dogs, bringing their dogs into the lab. And so it's great for us to 
you know, we collect this data and we're learning more about, about dogs on a, a broad scope, we're able to generate the scientific information. Then we're able to share the information with the owners who want to learn more about this. So we have this really direct insight to teach people about their dogs. I love that piece of what I call citizen science. There's a benefit to the, the citizens that are coming in as well. They're getting something out of this. Uh, but most importantly for me is that the dogs seem to love being in the lab. In fact, yeah. most of our owners tell us that it's one of their dog's favorite things to do is to come be in the lab with us. And I'm very interested in this idea that like, if one of the goals of our research is to make dogs' lives better, well, hopefully we can do that in our research, in the actual process of having a dog come play these cognitive games with us and participate in our studies. We want them to get something positive out of it. Uh, most um, of the owners tell us that, you know, the dogs associate us with the, all these positive experiences, both the place and the people. I've occasionally seen some of our our dogs that come into the lab outside of the lab and they recognize me and it's Cute. wonderful. It's a very, very happy, positive experience for everybody. And like, I think that's that great. Guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> it really makes the science fun. And I, I love that. What inspired you? Um, did you grow up with dogs? What inspired you to study this um, at Yale? So I did grow up with dogs. And during that process, I was always very fascinated by the way in which dogs seem to have this deep understanding of humans. Uh, initially, my interest really was in that, that domain of dogs understanding our emotional states, um, but that soon blossomed our understanding of our communication and how I seem to be able to teach dogs things that seem like they should be too hard to teach a dog to do, but right. they seem to learn really easily and really readily and were enthusiastic about learning. And I got very excited about this idea of how dogs learn from us. And uh, I really loved this idea always, but I was completely unaware of the idea that there was a field of study in which people were testing questions of psychology and social cognition in dogs. I was completely unaware of this. Um, by happenstance, I ended up being at a university for my undergrad in which there was a professor there, Dr. Ellen Furlong, who was running a lab just like mine at Yale. Where, where she was exploring questions of how dogs represent social phenomenon in their environments. And um, this is the process of me getting involved in the department. I made a real effort to you know, work with all of the professors that were there. And when I came across this lab, I immediately knew this was what I wanted to do. Uh, so I really dove in headfirst to that. And by the time I was a junior in college, I was, was working just about every day in the lab and uh, dedicating a real lot of my time outside of my class and coursework. Um, to learning more about dogs. And uh, it became clear to me at some point during that second half of college that if I really committed to this, it was something I could do as a career. Uh, so I feel very fortunate that I was in a situation in which I had an advisor as an undergrad who was able to um, you know, teach me the early skills needed to be a canine researcher. And then I feel extremely fortunate now that I'm in a situation at Yale where I work uh, with my advisor, Lori Santos, um, uh, on really asking these questions of human uniqueness and, and refining my research interest and finding this space, which I'm simultaneously using our, our lab and our research model to learn about dogs, to learn about humans, and to hopefully have an impact on both dogs and humans. Do you, um, do you know how long the, they've been, the Canine Condition Center has been functioning at Yale? And what was yeah, so the inspiration in the beginning to get it going? Uh, our lab opened a few years before I arrived. So I started with the lab in 2018. Uh, the lab began in 2015. Okay. Uh, at the time, we were actually just working with local dog daycare facilities. Mm -hmm. We didn't have an on-campus facility. 
The inspiration to start the lab came from my advisor, Lori Santos, who was previously doing a lot of research with non-human primates. In fact, she still does quite a bit of this work uh, over on in Puerto Rico on the island Cayo Santiago. Mm. A couple of my colleagues uh, are doing some work there right now, actually, uh, where they're also asking this question of human uniqueness just from a very different angle. They're looking at a species that has a shared genetic history with us. So that phylogenetic similarity of having a common ancestor that's common to both us and to them. And with with non-human primates, that common ancestor is fairly recent. Now, all species do have a common ancestor if you go back far enough, but you have to go back really, really far to find a human and dog common ancestor. Whereas you're not going back all that far to find a common ancestor between humans and racist monkeys, which is the the species that we work with at Cayo Santiago. Um, So it's the same question is from a different approach. The question is, are are we unique as a species? Um, And their more fine-tuned version of that question is, in what ways do we differ from species that have a very similar genetic history to us? Mm -hmm. Um, And this research is very interesting in that they're tackling different social questions there, still in the domain of, of how these non-human primates represent the social world, but through a slightly different angle. Whereas my work with dogs really seeks to understand these interactions that involve humans and dogs learning from and about us. Usually with the primates, we're asking questions of, of interpreting humans as just being agents in the environment that can move and can think, can know things, can believe things. And they ask monkeys to be able to make inferences about what they know, what they believe, and how they might act in that information. So it's fascinating research, though I'm not intricately a part of it. I'm very right. intrigued by it. Uh, and uh, I love looking at the sort of amalgamation of all this research together of the work that developmental psychologists are doing with developing humans, looking at toddlers and infants, mm-hmm. then looking at what non-human primate researchers are exploring with monkeys and, and chimpanzees and other apes. And then what we're doing with the dogs, it creates this really beautiful triangle of comparisons. We're able to start with some phenomenon that we know is early emerging in humans, then look to see if it's shared across our close genetic relatives, like non-human primates, or across our close social relatives, like dogs. So uh, the beginning of our lab was really just an effort by um, the folks that were here prior to me to add this additional branch of the work to be able to make a more complete comparison, a more complete understanding of what makes humans unique. Got it. Can we circle back to the actual um, work that you have the dogs do, like the actual um, games that they play and, and what that entails for the dogs? Yeah. So we, we have a variety of different tasks that dogs participate in in our lab, all of which involve some version of presentation of humans behaving in a certain way. Right. And then we see what dogs think about, about those behaviors that they've observed. So what I described before was a scenario that I call the social evaluation paradigm where they see humans behave in dichotomous or opposite ways. They'll see either someone who's nice or someone who's mean, somebody who's competent or somebody who's incompetent, right, right, opening right. a container. Uh, and then we, again, we just ask dogs who they'd rather spend time near. And we use that as a measure of their preference for those people. Another branch of our work looks to see how dogs solve problems and how they decide to persist on tasks on their own versus when they choose to ask for help from humans. This actually comes back to one of the early dog cognition findings, which is that when dogs are faced with a problem they can't solve on their own, one of their default problem-solving strategies is to recruit a human for help. Interesting. Uh, this is actually something that is relatively unique to dogs as well. Even other domesticated animals like pigs don't seem to do this. They'll keep working on it on their own, whereas dogs will readily turn back to the humans and, and kind of have this representation of where their own skill set ends and where the humans might be able to step in and help. So we know that broadly dogs do this, but I'm interested now in when dogs do this and in what circumstances they might not 
engage in that help-seeking behavior. So I'm showing dog scenarios in which we see that humans are maybe better at a task or not so good at a task, Mm -hmm. or maybe we show them that the task itself is very challenging or the task itself is very easy. Uh, And an experiment we haven't quite yet started, but we're looking into in the future, we'll look to see how the dog's relationship with the human that's in the room might dictate that problem-solving behavior. They might ask for help more readily from someone they're familiar with compared to someone they're just meeting for the first time. So I'm really deeply interested in, in how dogs think about their own relationship with humans right. in a lot of different contexts. One of these c- could uh, involve how dogs are making judgments about people, but other might just mean how dogs view humans as a part of their own ability to navigate the world. So right. in these, uh, what I call persistent studies, we give dogs one of these tasks they can't open on their own. Usually it's a Tupperware container that has a, a lid that snaps closed. So you uh-huh. need opposable thumbs to open it. And we just look to see when dogs stop trying on their own and when they will turn around and like initiate eye contact with the humans to ask them for help. So we are looking at different scenarios, different things the human might do ahead of this time that might influence this. So if the human encourages the dog, does that maybe prompt them to persist a little bit longer? Uh, If the human's not paying attention, is the dog less likely to ask them for help? So we're curious about all of these things that dogs might track in these situations. This works in its early stages, don't have any concrete results to share just yet. This is work that we're, we're hoping to have some information about in the near future. That's so cool. Well, we look forward to hearing all about it. How about this? This is a fun question. Do you have any fun stories um, about anything that you experienced with the dogs? Well, that's a good question. Any silly, <laughs> any silly things that happened with the dogs? That- okay, so we we have a study. Um, this is actually this is a great story. Okay, <laughs> so, good. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have a study in which we have this little. Uh, homemade curtain that we use to block the dogs from seeing some part of what, of what there um, was happening behind them in, in the experiment. So okay. there's some humans moving around. We want to make sure the dogs aren't able to see that they're moving. So we put up this little curtain so that we're going to block dogs from being able to see this. And we built this curtain from scratch because you know who, who makes a dog curtain to block dogs' view of right. things? It's not a commercially available item. Right. And we figured, all right, dogs range in size. You know, there's smaller dogs, bigger dogs, and we picked the size from this curtain that we thought would be you know, able to obscure the vision of just about any dog that came into our lab. Um, and we then are running this experiment. We're 40 some dogs into running this. We haven't yet had a problem with, with this curtain. Everything is going fine. And I see a dog that comes in and signs up as an experiment. And I knew immediately that like, the curtain is definitely not going to work for this, this right. dog. <laughs> like this is a very large dog. He, he will definitely be able to see around this. Uh, he was a very large German shepherd named okay. Winston. Um, now, Winston's a great dog in many ways. He uh, is one of my favorite dogs that comes to visit us in the lab because of his uh, curiosity for mm-hmm. things. So his natural curiosity coupled with his large size made him a, a particularly optimal candidate for uh, what was about to happen, which is when we put the curtain up, he just, just poked his neck up a little bit higher and just rested his head on top of the <laughs> curtain uh, so he could see everything that was happening behind the curtain. So unfortunately, we weren't able to include him in the study, but it made for a, an enjoyable experience for all of us in the lab to watch that video and um, so cute so he was cheating essentially right right he just really wanted to know what was happening <laughs> exactly um i see in the background you have a lot of musical instruments are you a musician as well i am actually in addition to studying psychology as an undergrad i was also majoring in music so i um i 
during my time as an undergrad, I was really pursuing these two very dis, uh, different types of, of discipline academically. So I was studying psychology, working with dogs and learning how to understand the human mind. I was also studying music, in particular jazz composition, where I was uh, composing and performing jazz music. Uh, the upright bass is my primary instrument, but I also played the guitar and the piano. So, uh, music's, music's a fun a fun hobby for me, and I enjoy being able to continue doing it, even though my main career is now in the realm of psychology. Yeah. They have made, haven't they decided that um, jazz and classical are the best suited music for dogs for um, like anti-anxiety and calming behavior? Have you heard I'm actually that? not familiar with that yeah. research, but I um, mean, jazz is certainly calming for me. So yeah. <laughs> there it wouldn't you go. be too much of a stretch <laughs> to think it might be calming for, for dogs as well. Though um, whenever we, we hear information about, about um, animals perceiving music, I always think we really need to like understand the building blocks of how animals perceive music deeply before we can start making claims about yeah. these higher level of things like that a certain genre might be better suited for an mm-hmm. animal. Um, this is a, a spot in which like, again, that creativity is actually really important. Like how do we actually assess whether an animal is having a certain response to music? Uh, there isn't, we don't have great answers to that at the moment. I hope that's something we can explore in the future. It'd be a really great way to sort of combine my interests of music and psychology. So maybe in the future, I'll be doing some of that research myself. <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to it. Well, thank you, Zachary. I think, um, do you have anything that you want to add? You've provided so much amazing information. Yeah, I think I think we really, really covered everything. But yeah, this was a, such a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. Yes, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Keep us posted. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Baru Podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Canine Cognition Center at Yale, I've put links in the show notes. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Baru Pet. Thanks, you guys. Let's chat next week.